This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au My name is Brad Koneman. I'm the Gospel Communities Pastor here at Anchor and part of Forest Lodge GC. Represent. But let me add a special welcome to you, uh, especially if you're new or visiting here at Anchor. We're so pleased that you've joined us this morning. I really hope that you're blessed uh, as you experience community here and as we hear from God's Word. Uh, I want to let you know that Anchor is an expectant church. Uh, we know that God is with us, that He's given us His Holy Spirit, and so we expect people to grow in their faith here as they're part of the Anchor community. We expect that God is going to use us this year as we live on mission because He is with us and He's working through us. And a lot of that is behind our resolution series. We want to expose the false hopes of our culture, telling us to work harder, do more, do better, just leaving us disappointed. And we want to lay before you gospel-centered resolutions as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit that God will transform us and change us and use us for His glory. So I'm going to pray for us this morning that He will do that as we have our last talk, Resolutions and Mission. So join me as I pray. Father, I thank you that you are with us by your Holy Spirit, that Jesus is here with us and that you want to speak to us this morning as your word is preached. And so please humble us. Please give us soft hearts to receive your word. Please change us. Please help us to turn away from, from our dead-end dreams so that we might live for you and live to love others as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to bring to mind, in, in your mind, an image of a refugee. What comes to mind? Someone that's been forced to flee their home. They're running away from war or danger or conflict. They don't know what's ahead or where they're going. Now, have, have you ever considered that Secular millennials end up on a very similar journey to the genuine refugee. This is the point that Mark Sayers makes in his book, The Road Trip That Changed the World. Mark preached at Anchor in 2016. Now, of course, we're not fleeing any physical danger and we're separated from the genuine refugee by wealth and opportunity and privilege. But our flight is triggered by existential crisis. So many of us are restlessly wandering, changing careers, traveling the world, fleeing relationships and commitment, but suffering a poverty of meaning, a loss of home, identity and place. We're spiritual refugees, rootless, lost. We drift through life without direction, without any sense of what we're living for or where we're going. No life purpose, no life mission. And our culture celebrates this, doesn't it? It's the journey that matters, not the destination. Not all who wander are lost. But does our restless wandering satisfy the deepest desires of our soul? Now, to be sure, on the way we experience small highs, momentary pleasures, the excitement of getting on a big jet plane to fly across the other side of the world, the rush of buying new clothes, the adrenaline of go-karting, the warmth and comfort of your coffee in the morning, the beauty of a sunset, but none of this lasts. We're experienced collectors, but our bottoms don't have a our buckets don't have a bottom on them. Our appetites are insatiable. We always want more, we're never satisfied, and we're left feeling empty. No wonder millennials are experiencing midlife crises earlier than ever. 
So last year, LinkedIn, the career website, surveyed over 6,000 people in, their tw in the 25 to 33-year-old age bracket in the US, the UK, and Australia, and India, and they found that three-quarters of people had experienced a quarter-life crisis, and the average was 27 years old for both men and women. We face pressure to make our personal and professional lives successful. We want to find our niche in the career market. We've got to find a job that we're passionate about. There's pressure to buy a property, but that seems out of reach. There's pressure to get married, but we can't find the perfect spouse. We compare ourselves to others, and we're just afraid that we don't have it all together. We're left unsure and frustrated. Forbes provides this list of signs that you're experiencing a midlife crisis or a quarter-life crisis if you're 27. I wonder if any of these resonate with you. Do you feel apathetic, like you're on autopilot? Have you lost your purpose? Are you jealous of others? Are you willing to walk away from success? You're not satisfied, you're overwhelmed, you're confused. It might feel like you're adrift at sea with no compass, you can't see the horizon, you're battered by the waves, and you've got no idea where to point the rudder. Does any of this resonate with you? Are you dissatisfied with restlessly wandering, searching for meaning, but finding nothing? Are you sick of being stuck in a rut? Are you sick of the pressure to have to reinvent yourself every single year to pre present a successful you to the world? What if there was a better way to live? What if you could find purpose and meaning and lasting joy? What if you could do something with your life that matters, that makes a difference, not just for five years or 50 years, but into eternity? Jesus offers us a better way to live. He offers us purpose and meaning and lasting joy. But before we consider this new way of Jesus, we've got to press in deeper to see the emptiness of our own dead-end dreams that run us towards, towards the edge of life crisis. And I want us to specifically focus on the great Australian dream. What is the great Australian dream? Well, According to an ANU poll, more than three-quarters of Australians see home ownership as integral to the Australian way of life. And I, I hear this from my grandparents. I've had their, them chattering away in the back of my head for the last 10 years. You've got to get into the market. Rent money is dead money. You've got to buy a house. If you were wise, you would buy a house. And it just seems out of reach sometimes. Now, some of you do own your own home. Just like five minutes ago, I was talking with Justin and Greta. They've just bought their first home. What a blessing and gift from God. Uh, many of us are still renting, but all of us are swimming in this cultural dream of home ownership. The great Australian dream is alive and well in our hearts. But for many of us, the dream has become a nightmare. More and more of us are experiencing mortgage or rental stress. Many of us are eaten up with envy as we look at the perfect homes of people on Instagram or our friends and family, and we know that that's just beyond our reach. The great Australian dream can crush us, not just emotionally, but financially. But it can also puff us up. We look at ourselves and compare ourselves to others, and we think we've arrived. We show off our homes as trophies of success. But this dream only offers us temporary satisfaction at best. We build something with bricks and mortars and mortar that crumbles. Whether it's acquired by the government for West Connects or it breathes its last breath and crumbles in a hundred years. 
For many, the great Australian dream or its many variants can set them on a path of endless striving that distracts them from what really matters in life. Pericles, the Greek statesman and general of the 5th century BC, was right when he said this, what you leave behind is not what is engraved in stone monuments or houses, but what's woven into the lives of others. That's good, isn't it? What you leave behind is not what's engraved in stone monuments, but what's woven into the lives of others. Now, Jesus spoke into this space as well. Someone came up to him and said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's not sharing any of it. He's keeping it all for himself. And Jesus sees into the man's heart and responds with a stinging critique of his greed. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus goes on and tells the man a story that illustrates what's happening in his heart and exposes his dead-end dreams. So a rich farmer has a bumper crop and he thinks, what am I going to do with all this? I don't have enough room to store all my grain. My barns are overflowing. I know. I'll knock down my barns. I'll start again. I'll build something bigger to store all my grain. Now I've got everything I need. I've made it. I can relax, take it easy and enjoy life. Now for most of us, we're thinking, this guy is savvy. What a wise investment decision. You don't want to go to all the hard work of ploughing your fields and get all that yield only for it to be spoiled by the rain. He's created an income-generating investment that he can live, live off and enjoy the good life. But Jesus has a different perspective. He says, God will say to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? You don't take it with you. You work your butt off to build your wealth and then you die. And you leave it with someone who hasn't worked for it and you've got no idea how they're going to spend it. Jesus condemns this guy for storing up things for himself but not being rich towards God. In Jesus' eyes, the rich farmer has a dead-end dream that's distracted him from what really matters in life. Now, this is not a sermon on the ethics of home ownership and investment, although I think that would be a brilliant sermon to preach. I want, us to hear, I want you to hear me say really clearly that home ownership is not sinful. A house is a created good, a blessing from God to be used for good purposes. Mitch reminded us last week of the biblical principle of stewardship and talked to us about stewarding our bodies for God's glory. And in the same way, we need to steward our money, our wealth, our finances for God's glory. It actually honours God to be intentional about budgeting and how you invest your money rather than careless and sloppy, just letting it slip right through your fingers like sand. This is not a question of home ownership. This is a question of hope. If our hope is in the great Australian dream to fulfil all the deepest desires of our soul, then we're going to be left disappointed. Now, this isn't just home ownership. The same goes for career and travel and relationships, wanting the perfect body, building your wealth, trying to collect experiences, whatever dream you have. If you make something apart from God your ultimate source of hope and purpose and joy, then it's going to let you down. It's going to crush you and leave you disappointed. I want us to see that so often we are short-sighted. We don't dream big enough. We make short-term plans and put our hopes in dead-end dreams that die with us. Sometimes these dreams can crush us 
when we fail to meet them, spiraling us off into our quarter-life crisis or our midlife crisis. Sometimes they can produce envy and jealousy when we look around and see others living out our dreams and compare them to our own sad lives. And some of us achieve our dreams, but are still left dissatisfied. The great Australian dream, and its many variants, is a dead-end dream. If you put your hope in it, you'll be ultimately disappointed. But Jesus offers us a better way, a better way to live, a life of purpose and meaning and satisfaction that lasts. Jesus calls all of us, holding the tatters of our dead-end dreams in our hands, beaten, burnt out and broken, he calls us, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, Jesus doesn't just take a burden away from us, but he gives us something. What does he say? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus gives us his yoke. Now, this isn't an egg yoke that's spelt differently. A yoke is something that goes on the backs of cattle. As you can hopefully see in this picture, it's intended to make carrying a heavy burden or pulling a plough through the dirt a bit easier as two share the load together. But the, the image of a yoke is also used of a rabbi and a disciple as the The disciple takes on the yoke of his teacher and follows his teacher in obedience. And Jesus rebuked the religious leaders of his day for laying heavy burdens, heavy yokes upon the people with their legalistic demands. But Jesus' yoke of discipleship isn't like this. He says that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, he offers us rest for his souls. So I want you to imagine, bring up the, the oxes again, I want you to imagine you're there next to Jesus under the yoke together. He's calling us to come under the yoke, under his yoke, and stand side by side with him, to walk with him, to plow the field with him, shoulder to shoulder, learning his way, learning from him, to live in the new way, the way we were made to live. So what is this new way under the yoke of Jesus? Well, it's really an old way. It's the old way of the Hebrew law, the life of love. Jesus summed up all the law and the prophets with the two great commandments. The first, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He says, do this and you will live. That's what we're searching for, isn't it? We're searching for life, something that will satisfy. This new way of love offers us life. To put it another way, this life of love is a life of worship and a life of mission. Worship, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. And mission, to love your neighbor as yourself. Jonathan Edwards understood this. Uh, He was a preacher in New England in the 18th century and was at the heart of the Great Awakening movement of the gospel. And he's really famous for writing a series of gospel-centered resolutions in his diary that acted as a life compass and directed his life. And his first resolution, right up the top, controlled the rest of them. And it captures this twin focus of worship and mission, love for God and love for neighbor. Number one, he writes, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory 
resolved to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general. Resolved to do this whatever difficulties I meet. So we're going to look at this twin focus of the new way of Jesus, a life of worship and a life of mission. So first, worship, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. The problem of humanity is that we were made to live for God, but instead we live for ourselves. Instead of following God's plan for humanity, we follow our own dreams and ignore God. This is all of our stories because we all are sinners. We've all turned away from God. And I remember Reese Ashby, who's sitting just down here, who's in Forest Lodge Gospel Community, part of the Anchor, Anchor family. I remember him sharing at Gospel Community last year about some of his dead-end dreams, that he was looking for purpose in his career and sport and alcohol and money and women. But that, he said they were all just momentary highs, but ultimately soulless dead ends. That's what he said, soulless dead ends without joy. And then, as I was texting him just this morning, he wrote, With Jesus, I felt deeply loved in relationship with him. I felt a sense of calmness and order in the world, that rest that Jesus brings as we come under his yoke, that I hadn't truly felt in a lasting sense before. The world in which I walked was no longer random and uncertain and selfish, with my part uncertain. Now the world had a purpose, and through his grace, my part was assured. A few years ago, Reese became Christian, praise God, and has found new purpose and meaning and joy in life. Stuff that his career and sport and women and alcohol just didn't, didn't give him, he has found in Jesus. See, Jesus offers us a reorientation of our lives. He turns our lives around so that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us. We live a life of worship. Well, why do we worship God? Why do we live for His glory? Well, it's a response to who He is and what He's done. Who is God? God is supremely good. He's blindingly holy. He's boundlessly merciful, unswervingly just, majestic beyond imagination. He is above us and beyond us in every way, insurpassably supreme. There is no one greater than Him. He alone is worthy of our worship. And yet, despite the distance that we have from God, He is so supremely perfect and we are stuck in the mire of sin. He's freely chosen to share His life with us, not because we deserve it, but because of His boundless grace and mercy. He sent His Son to die for us when we were at our worst, to reconcile God and man. God is worthy of our worship because of who He is and what He has done. No wonder multitudes around his throne in heaven sing out with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb, Jesus, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Now, God doesn't coerce praise out of us like some cosmic vacuum cleaner. This is a joyful response to experiencing his goodness and grace. For everyone who has seen and tasted that God is good, you can't help but praise him. And this is the source of our greatest joy. It is our joy to worship God. Now, this isn't just singing. Worship isn't just something that you do in church on a Sunday. Worship is all of life. It impacts your everyday lives, how you get up in the morning, how you work, how you treat people. 
the decisions you make, how you use your money and your time, the controlling factor for all of that is that it's all for God. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you're doing it all to the glory of God. Now, if we think about our homes, which are a blessing and a gift from God, if we're trying to use them for God's glory, we're not showing them off as a trophy of our success. We're thinking, how can I use my home for God and to love others? How can I bless other people with this gift that God has given to me? And I think our GC leaders and those who host GCs are an amazing example of using your home for God's glory. They open up their homes every week to create space for community, to welcome you guys in. They cook you dinner. They open their lives so that you can meet Jesus and grow in your faith. So I think we should give them a round of applause because they're just a wonderful blessing to us as a community and an amazing example of how you can use what God has given you for God's glory. And it, it leads me to ask you, church, I wonder if there's an area of your life where God is speaking to you now, an area of your life where you're experiencing conviction from the Holy Spirit right now. You realize that you're still living for yourself in this area of your life and God is convicting you to change. Is there an area of your life where God wants to reorientate you, to no longer live for yourself but to live for Him and to love others? And if you're experiencing that conviction right now, I'd invite you to go up the back after, after this message to talk with our prayer team. They'll be wearing orange lanyards and I'd love to pray for you. I'd invite you to pluck up the courage to confess that to them so that they can pray for you, that God will change you, and so that they can help talk you through what it looks like to change that. So if you are feeling that conviction this morning, I'd invite you to be prayed for after our gathering. So a life of worship, and second, a life of mission, to love your neighbour as yourself. The church is a missionary church because God is a missionary God. Our mission flows from God's mission. Just as the Father sent the Son to seek and save the lost, Jesus now sends his Spirit-empowered disciples to make disciples of all nations. See, Christians aren't just saved, but we're sent into the world with a purpose. John Stott writes this, The highest missionary motive is neither obedience to the Great Commission, important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we contemplate the wrath of God, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. This quote captures really well that worship and mission are actually intertwined. Our worship propels our mission. John Piper says that mission exists because worship doesn't. There are places in our city, places around the world, where people have not recognised recognize God. And we're jealous for His glory. Now, of course, this isn't coercive mission, twisting people's arms to convert, scaring people with threats of hellfire and damnation, although the judgment of God is real and should make us tremble. No, ours is a mission of love. This is obedience to the second command, to love your neighbour as yourself. Just as Jonathan Edwards said, that he's resolved to do whatever he thinks to be his duty and most for the good of humanity. See, Christians aren't haters, we're lovers. We want the good of our world. We want the good of humanity. We want to love our neighbour and we recognise that people's greatest need is to be reconciled to God that our greatest enemy is death. 
And we celebrate the good news that Jesus has defeated death. He's defeated our greatest enemy. And he's brought life through his resurrection. That through his death, we can be reconciled to God. This is good news. Christians are good news people. We're party people. We celebrate God's abundant grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. And our mission is to proclaim this good news of the kingdom far and wide through word and deed. This mission sends us across the street to our neighbour and it sends us across the world to the lost on the farthest reaches. And this morning I wanted to bring to your attention that one of our sisters, part of the Anchor family, Ned Gifford, this is her last Sunday with us as she prepares to go across the seas to the Buddhist world as a missionary to share the gospel. We've loved having Ned as part of the Anchor family. She's served on the prayer team and been part of the gospel community. And I hope that her story inspires us as she goes across the seas, prepares to go across the seas with the gospel, that will inspire you to go across the street. Because both missionaries have the same motive, whether it's the overseas missionary or the local missionary. We're both willing to do whatever it takes to see people reconciled to God and experience his love. God's mission offers us a lasting legacy. We're impacting people's lives for eternity. This is what God has made us for, a life of worship and a life of mission. And there's no greater adventure, no greater purpose, no greater significance than in being used by God for his purposes. Now, for some of you, this may be a new vision for your life. You realize that this is a pivotal moment where God is calling you to give up your dead-end dreams and to live for something bigger, to turn away from simply living for yourself to living for the glory of God and the good of others. For some of you, you might be convicted that you've got a foot in both worlds. You want some of Jesus, but you're still holding on to the dreams of the world. You've been seduced by the idols of home and career and sex and travel. God is calling for wholehearted surrender. He wants us to repent of our half-baked worship, of just going through the motions, and give Him our best. Anchor wants to be a church of passionate worshippers and loving missionaries, and this begins with repentance. Daily repentance, turning away from our selfish dreams and remembering God's dream for the world so that we can take our part in it. Now, for others of you, this might be fresh inspiration. You know this stuff. You're living this stuff. But maybe at the start of 2018, you're feeling a bit jaded and tired. This might be God's word for you at just the right time to bring fresh resolve to live for Him this year. If you've been walking this journey with Jesus for any amount of time then no doubt you will have failed all of us have messed up stumbling in sin faltering in unbelief shrinking in shame I think back to my journey through high school and I think I really wrestled with having a foot in both worlds as I really desired the dreams of my soccer mates sex drugs and rock and roll but also felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit to live for God. And I remember a moment where my coach was giving me a lift back from soccer training and there was one other Christian in my soccer team that I was friends with, that we went to school together. And I remember my coach asking me, Brad, you're not a Christian, you're not a churchy like Ian, are you? And it was like a moment where I had to make a decision, a decision to be bold and courageous, to stand up and bear witness to, to Jesus or a decision to shrink back in shame. 
No, 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 none of that's for me. That stuff's silly. We've all failed in, in mission and worship. And you might think, how could God ever use me? I'm useless. I'm weak. I'm sinful. I'm a failure. I want to remind you, church, that it's those things that qualify you for God's grace. And it's those things that ensure that God gets all the glory. When he works through you, you go, you can't, you can't take any credit for yourself. You can only point to him and that he has used you through his Holy Spirit for his purposes. I want to inspire you, church, that God wants to use you this year, weak as you are. God wants to use me this year, weak as I am. He wants to use normal people like you and me to accomplish his extraordinary plans and purposes for the world. And he's working that out through our everyday lives as we make everyday decisions about whether we're going to honour God or live for ourselves, about whether we're going to love this other person or live for ourselves. See, what we need is, is not more willpower. We don't need better resolutions. We need a bigger vision for God and his mission for the world that boosts our expectation, that we know that God is here with us and wants to use us. We need clarity on the gospel. What are we actually trying to communicate to people? We need to remind ourselves that Jesus' death and resurrection is the good news that we have to tell people, that through his death and resurrection that we can be reconciled to God as our sin is dealt with, as our death is defeated, and Jesus rises to give us life, new life. And more than ever, we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We need spirit-empowered boldness and courage to bear witness to our friends and family. Now, Anchor wants to be a missional church. We want to see the city of Sydney transformed by the gospel as we make disciples of Jesus. We want to live in community, on mission, for Jesus. We want to equip you to live with gospel intentionality in the everyday stuff of life. And we're calling on you, church, to surrender your broken dreams and pick up a new vision for your life. Living for God and others instead of for yourself. So what will it look like for you this year to live on mission for Jesus? If you were to make a missional resolution this year, what would it be? Imagine if you prayerfully resolved to invite five people to church this year. That's doable, right? Especially with the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Imagine if you prayerfully resolved to lead one person to faith this year. Who would this be? Who is God putting on your heart right now that he's calling you to reach out to? How would this shape the way that you lived? To help you to do this, we've put some bookmarks on your seats. And I invite you to pick that up right now. When we started Anchor, we rolled out this program called Five for Five that we wanted to, we really believed that this would help us live as missional disciples and be intentional in pursuing our friends. And we want to bring this back to your attention and focus on this again this year. So the challenge is to identify five friends. It might be co-workers, people in your soccer team, neighbours, friends, family, and write them down. And to put this bookmark in your abide journal or in your Bible or on your fridge, somewhere you're going to see it every day. And then for those five friends to do five things for them, to pray for them every day, to contact them once a week. Now you might work with them and see them in the office every day, so that's easy, but you might send them a text. To bless them once a month. You might buy them a coffee or write them a card or take them out for their birthday. 
to invite them to special events. You might invite them to your birthday party or to an Triple J Hottest 100 party yesterday. Uh, but we've got some amazing... <laughs> so you can wait a year for that one, for the next one. Uh, but we've got some amazing events coming up at, at church that we, you could invite them to. So on the 10th of February, Dan Patterson is coming. We're having a Skeptics Q&A night uh, called Is It Crazy to Believe at the pub? That'd be an amazing event to invite your seeking friends, skeptical friends to. Uh, we've got Introducing Jesus coming up in gospel communities. We invite you to prayerfully invite your friends to those. We've got Easter coming up. We've got a series later in the year called Wayward that's specifically targeting people who have walked away from the church, inviting them to come home. So invite them to special events and then share your faith as opportunities arise. If that's something that you want to take up, a missional resolution that you want to take up, then I invite you to take that home and live intentionally this year on mission. Now, as we respond now to this message, calling us to give up our dead-end dreams and to live a life of worship and mission, I want to remind us that ultimately this isn't our mission, this is Jesus' mission. Jesus has risen from the dead, he's ascended to the Father, he's sent his spirit, and he is the one that is going to build his church, he's promised to do it church. And so as we respond and seek to commit our lives to the Lord, let us look back to him, the one who was crucified for our sins, was dead and buried and yet rose again so that we might experience new life. Let us give him the glory that he deserves because he alone is worthy of worship. We're going to respond in singing together, singing praises to his name. The prayer team will be up the back. And if you've come under conviction from the Holy Spirit this morning, then please don't just sit there and do nothing about it, but go up to them and ask for prayer. They would love to pray for you. And we're going to respond by sharing the Lord's Supper this morning. We've got stations down the front and also in the middle to the sides. And I invite you to take up the bread which symbolizes Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross, to dip it in the juice, which symbolizes his blood that was shed to wash away our sins and to give thanks to God for his abundant grace and to ask him to use you this year to live for him. So I'm going to pray for us, church, and then we're going to stand and sing together. Father, we do thank you so much for your abundant grace. We know that you haven't treated us as our sins deserve, but that you've come and pursued us in love. We thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for us. We thank you that he lived the perfect life of obedience to you and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead so that we might experience new life. And we ask, Father, and expect that you might take and use our lives this year, that in the everyday little decisions that we would choose to live for you and not for ourselves, and we would choose to share your love with our neighbours. We know that we need your help for this, so please empower us by your Holy Spirit for everyday worship and everyday mission. In Jesus' name, amen.